the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Cursed literally means judgment, that he is judging this serpent. Cursed above all. This I looked at this thing, it seemed like for hours. What does it mean to be cursed above all? Does that mean that he cursed the other animals and the rest of the creation, and he cursed the serpent, the snake, above everything else? It doesn't mean that. It literally means that out of all the animal kingdom, out of all the animals, you are cursed. It's the only animal that is cursed. Now, there are consequences to Adam and Eve's sin that all of creation feels, but the only animal that's cursed is the serpent. And we see that in Deuteronomy 14.2, when God is talking about, it says, For you are a people, holy to the Lord our God, out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. He chose the Israelites out of all the people to be his chosen people. He cursed the snake out of all of the animal kingdom to be cursed. Romans 8, 20, 21 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You only see three curses in Genesis. You see the curse of the serpent, the literal snake. You see the curse of the ground. And then you see the curse of Cain, who killed Abel. So if God is not cursing Satan here, why is he cursing an innocent bystander? This is a snake. This is a dragon. This is a serpent that the enemy took possession of. Why did he curse it? The serpent was standing there, minding his own business. And God turned him into the most detestable reptile animal on the planet. People have been scared and have loathed snakes since this time. It could have been a mouse. A lot of ladies would think mice are worse than snakes, but it was a snake. Second half of 14, it says, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all of your days. Eating dust doesn't mean that the snake literally ate the dust. You've heard the phrase, he bit the dust. Well, that phrase comes out of here. It means that, that somebody literally was hurt. They bit the dust. They, they were defeated. 
It's a picture of defeat. In Isaiah 49, it says, Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. They will bow down before you and their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust at your feet. It's a picture of defeat. In Micah 7, it says, They will lick the dust like a serpent. Like reptiles of the earth, they will come trembling out of their fortresses. Bite in the dust is a picture, is verbiage that connotes defeat. All the days of his life, while the rest of creation will be delivered from the fate of the fall, Satan will not. Satan is done. Satan is defeated, and that snake crawl around. Anytime you see a snake crawl around, think rainbow. Think rainbow. God gave us a rainbow to remember the flood. Anytime you see a snake, remember that Satan is defeated. Satan is completely defeated. He has no authority at all. In Isaiah 65, it says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. This is a picture of the thousand-year millennium. There'll be no pain, there'll be no temptation, there'll be no sin during this thousand years. It says, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. Men, did you know that before the fall, we were vegetarians? And in the new earth, we're probably going to be vegetarians again? Does that bump some of you out? Not at all. Me neither. I can do tofu as long as I can worship the Lord 24-7. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is a picture here of unity, of perfect paradise, paradise restored. Except one thing. The enemy is still eaten dust. And the enemy is going to get thrown into a thousand year torment. He's going to be locked up for a thousand years. And then he'll be released again for a short while. Now, after God cursed the physical serpent, he turned toward the spiritual serpent, Satan, the liar, the deceiver, and he laid judgment on Satan. Now, Martin Luther said about verse 15, Martin Luther said this text, verse 15, embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. This text, this one verse, embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. If you miss verse 15, you've missed all of God's Word. If we don't understand these verses in chapter 3, we don't understand the rest of God's Word. And I've got to tell you that as a, as a man that has been uh, regenerated for almost 30 years, but really walking with the Lord, I would say, in, in, in growing maybe the last 15 years, I have not spent that much time in these verses. There's been lots of cute Bible stories that have come out of this. But if we don't understand these verses in the context of the entire Word of God, we're missing it. Verse 15. He's talking to the spiritual Satan now. And he says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is often called by our church fathers proto-evangelism. This is the first gospel. This is the first gospel. This is also the first prophecy and the first prophet. God being the prophet. Enmity means hatred or hostility. God is putting enmity between the woman and Satan. 
Now this really messed up Satan's plan. Because when Satan deceived Eve and Adam sinned, the enemy thought it was over. It was over. They're mine. They are now enemies of God, and he's right. They were now enemies of God, and they're now friends of Satan. And the reason that the enemy was so sure about this is that he rebelled against God, and God threw him out of heaven, and a third of all the angels went with him, never to come back again, with no hope of restoration. So the enemy said, if I can cause Adam and Eve to be enemies of God and to be my friends... I've got all of mankind forever. Not so fast. God says to Satan, I am going to cause the woman and her offspring to hate you. To never lock arms with you. And I'm going to reconcile them back to myself. So not only do they hate you, but they're my friend again. Satan never anticipated this. Satan cannot read our minds. He does not know God's heart. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be capped until the judgment. Jude 1 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness with the judgment of the great day. Satan and his minions, the former angels, have no hope. They are cast out from God's presence forever. It's not the same with us. There is hope. There is hope for us in the offspring of the woman. And we're going to look more at that right now. First, who is the serpent's seed? God said that he was going to put enmity between the serpent's offspring or seed. If I say seed, it's the same as offspring. Satan cannot procreate. Satan cannot have kids, make kids. It's him and however many angels got thrown out of heaven. Period. Matthew 23, 33 says, it's Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the days, the one, the pretenders who had no relationship with Jesus, but were defaming Christ's name. And they were promoting religiosity. And he says to them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? John 8.44 says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We can't be certain 100% who the offspring of Satan is. Who the offspring is that he's talking about here in Genesis 3. But we've got a pretty good idea who who we've seen him call the devil over time. And it's usually people that are hostile against God hostile against God so who's the woman's offspring it's a family line that forms the backbone of the entire Bible the importance of this lineage cannot be overstated beginning in this verse the offspring of the woman becomes the source and hope for the defeat of the serpent and friendship and reconciliation with the father it happens right here I just got goosebumps. This busy thing right here, we're going to leave this up, God willing, for the rest of the time teaching in Genesis. And I, I would, uh, we need a magnifying glass. But it starts here down at Adam and Eve, and it traces the lineage all the way to Christ. And to think through all 
the providential things that needed to happen for Jesus to be born of a Virgin Mary and to die the death that he died that was prophesied hundreds of years before and to redeem and reconcile all of mankind and to crush the serpent's head that was prophesied right at the beginning of creation is nothing short of remarkable. And it's all right here. So I hope, hope you enjoy that. So I'm going to read verse 15 again. I will put enmity, God says, between you, Satan, and the woman. I'm going to cause hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know what? You and I are also part of this lineage. Even though it starts here in Adam and Eve's offspring, their seed, and goes up to Christ and ends right there. Did you know, if you know Jesus Christ, that you are adopted into the family? That you are part of the offspring. You are the seed that we're going to see in a minute that is going to help, going to be a part of crushing Satan's head. Second half of verse 15, He shall bruise your head. He all of a sudden shows up. He's talking third person somehow. Who is this he that showed up all of a sudden? It's Christ. Christ is mentioned right here in chapter 3 of Genesis in verse 15. The reference to Satan bruising Christ's heel means that Satan is sneaky. It literally means to come from behind. That Satan will bruise Christ's heel in Christ's suffering. Just like Satan snuck up on Jesus after 40 days of fasting. The enemy snuck up when Jesus was at his weakest. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a sneak. But Christ's death and resurrection will once and for all defeat the enemy. The serpent's head will be crushed once and for all. I think there should be a a chart up there that shows um, just the lineage through Genesis. It's really a, a light slide. But we'll be studying these generations as we look through Genesis, as we go through the 50 chapters. And it will end right below Jacob. It says the 12 sons of Jacob. And the line will continue, not through Joseph, who I thought for years, it seemed like it would logically be Joseph, but it's Judah. The lineage will continue through Judah. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's talking to the church. He's talking to you and I. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're the body of Christ. Christ is the head. And we will play a part in the final destruction of Satan. I want to remind you that that Satan is defeated. He's defeated now, even though the head isn't officially crushed. But it says in the scriptures that greater is he that is in you than is in the world. Did you know that Satan has no authority with us if you know Jesus Christ? None. None. And there's bad theology going on up there. How can the enemy possess us or infect us when the Holy Spirit lives in us? He can have a heyday with our mind. And that's where he does the battle in the mind. And what he does is he deceives God's word. He deceives the truth. That's where the enemy does his work. But he cannot possess you. He cannot make you do anything. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring bring forth children. 
This was by far and away the most difficult verse for me to understand. And there's a number of different takes on this verse, what it means. What the pain actually is that the woman is going to feel as a consequence of her sin. The obvious one is pain in childbirth. But if you look at the New King James, if you have the New King James, or if you have an NASB in the margin, it has an and. And this is what the New King James says. It says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Pain here literally means everything that is hard to bear. It is conception and everything that comes with it. I believe that God is talking about a general pain and sorrow as well, not just pain in childbirth. And if you think about women from the beginning of time, guys, they have had so much more pain and abuse, disrespect than men have had a hundred times over. Women have been objects from the beginning of time of, of sexual pleasure. They have been told to stay home and mind your own business, and I will call you when I want you to come out. They've been enslaved, they've been beaten, they've been abused. So there is pain, sorrow in general. This pain also comes from raising children. And it says in God's Word that children are a blessing. But there's a connection with a mom and a child that, it, that us guys, men, we just don't have the same thing. I love my kids. I cry with my kids, for my kids, over my kids. I don't like to see them suffer. I don't like to see them hurt. I don't like to see them fail. But compound those feelings that I have ten times by my bride. And there is just a pain and a sorrow that women have. It starts with postpartum. It goes into nursing. It's the pain of wayward and sick children. There's something unique in a deeper level of connection. What can women do to alleviate the sorrows of this curse? And I believe that God's Word tells us that it can be mitigated. 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15. says, For Adam was born first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they, she, the woman, continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. It says, yet she will be saved. This is not salvation in the sense that she is reconciled with God. But this is preserved. This is a sense of God mitigating those sorrows of the curse, of the consequences of the sin. And I'm not sure how it all plays out. But ladies, can you imagine raising your children as blessed and as beautiful as they are without any hope in Christ? I would dare say that it's impossible and that sorrows and pain in that will be a lifetime. The woman is delivered. This curse is mitigated if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And some of you ladies are thinking, I can't relate. My kids, I've never had sorrow. I've never had pain with them. Other than childbirth, nursing her a little bit. But they're pure joy to me. Do you know why? Do you know why they're pure joy to you? Because you've been delivered through childbearing by your faith, love, and self-control. 
that you're raising your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Does this mean that you're immune from something horrible happening to your kids? No, you're not. But you're going to find a joy that somebody that is not in Christ won't find. Next is multiplied pain in in giving birth. That's an easy one. That the pain that you ladies experience in, in childbirth. By the way, I heard a guy the other day say, you know what, I just did a gallstone or a kidney stone or something, and he says, I think it was worse than, than childbirth. What do you ladies say about that? <laughs> Not. But it was multiplied. And this doesn't mean multiplied from a sense that it was bad before the fall, and now the pain is multiplied because there was no pain before the fall. It means that the pain is multiplied upon pain upon pain. It means that it's a really bad pain, guys. But there was no pain before the fall. If we go back to the New King James Version, it says, I will multiply your sorrow and your conception. I'm sure I'm going to get a few emails on this one. But I believe that God gave the women the ability to conceive more often after the fall. Think about this. Before the fall, was there death? There was no death. Adam and Eve lived over 900 years They could have populated the earth pretty much on their own. It says, he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, If they were having babies and not dying at the rate that we're having babies and dying, this baby would have been over a long time ago. So I believe that he multiplied conception. And if you look at the literal Hebrew translation, and it's more literal in both the King James Version... In the NESB, if you look in your margin, it's got an and. Second half of verse 16, second half of the consequences for Eve. First is pain and misery. Second is is that she shall desire her husband and he shall rule over her. This is not a sexual desire. This is not a sexual desire as some teach. Seems to me that God told them to be fruitful and multiply, and there must have been some desire before the fall for that to happen. So it is not a curse. In fact, sexual desire is a good thing. The Hebrew term here translated desire, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, is used one other time in the first five books of the Bible in the Pentateuch. It appears in verse 4-7 in a statement that closely parallels this verse. It's where the Lord tells Cain before he murders Abel that sin's desire is for you. Sin's desire wants to master you. But you must rule over it. Even every woman after her has had a desire to master or oppose, or to lead her husband. Reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. God created Adam first, and created Eve as a helper suitable for him. And ever since the fall, woman has been struggling with a position of authority in the home. God sees man and woman, by the way, is equal. Man's not up here and woman down here. They're equal. But there is a order of roles. And as the woman has wanted to oppose and lead her husband since the fall, the man, starting with Adam, also abandoned his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife, replacing it with his own sinful, distorted desire to rule over Eve. And that's sin. 
It's sin for Eve to desire to master or lead her husband, and it is sin for the husband to rule over his wife. We're partners. And this is one of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, is that marriage has been distorted. Marriage has been flat-out messed up. And man and woman have both been in rebellion in their respective God-given roles. In Ephesians 5.22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her. And I've seen this in my own marriage over 29 years, and I can guarantee you that 99% of all marriage issues comes down to what Ephesians 5 is teaching. That the woman won't submit to the man, and the man won't love his wife. Some of you read the book, Love and Respect. He talks about the crazy cycle. It's the crazy cycle. It's that the man won't love his wife because she won't submit to him. The woman won't submit to her husband because the husband won't love her. And guys, I've heard us say, and I've probably said it myself, is she won't submit to me. She won't submit to me. Try loving her as Christ loved the church and lay your life down for her. That's the example here. Ladies, you want to see your husband's heart melt and love you like you've never been loved before? Submit to him. Respect him. And I know that Oftentimes, we're not worthy of submission. In fact, most of the time, I'm not worthy of submission. But you know, when Nancy respects me and comes underneath my authority, knowing that I might lead us off a cliff, it empowers me to love her as Christ loves the church and to lay my life down for her. Verse 17, Adam's turn. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. He's going to receive consequences. And Adam's consequences are pain and work. And some of this stuff just doesn't line up when you look at it first blush. Because God called us to work. Work's a good thing, as we're going to see in a minute. Because Adam will disobey God, the ground is cursed, and Adam will work in toil and misery. Second half of verse 17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Without the man working, the ground will produce nothing but thorns and thistles, nothing but weeds. Take a look at this in Ecclesiastes. I love that book. Ecclesiastes 2.11, 2.17, 2.23, 3.9. The author which we presuppose to be Solomon, says this, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 2.17 So I hated my life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. 2.23 For all his days are full of sorrow, This is the working man. For all of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Guys, have you ever had a time where you can't sleep at night? 
because you're worried about what's going on at the office or you just, you're just flat out worried about providing for your family. 3.9 says, what gain has the worker from his toil? What gain has the worker from his toil? Okay, guys, I don't want to hear it. Some of us have been working out there for 30 years, some of you 40, some 50 years. And you're going, when can I retire? Guess what? Adam lived for 930 years. And we're looking to take early retirement at age 55, 60. I think he was looking for early retirement about 870, somewhere in there. So they knew hard work back then. Hope and joy and mitigation for this pain is found in the following truths. Work is a gift and a blessing. We were made to work, guys. We were made to work. Gals, primarily guys, we were made to work. It's important to remember that work is a blessing. In Ecclesiastes 3.13, it says, Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Our work is God's gift to us. Ecclesiastes 5.19, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. Just like the woman for her curse was mitigated through salvation, the same thing goes for the regenerate man in his work. When you are saved, when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, work takes on a whole different meaning. A whole different meaning. By fulfilling our God-given purposes and work, such as providing for our family. Providing for our family is a good thing. In fact, it says in 1 Timothy 5, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. God wants us to provide for our families. And just a side note on that, it didn't cross my mind when I was putting that down, but some of you are out of work, and some of you are nervous about providing for your families. God knows. And it's the heart of it. It says in Proverbs not to be a sluggard. You can be the opposite of a sluggard. You can be diligent and be unemployed. The next way that God mitigates the consequence of sorrow and pain in our work as as believers is by being a witness at work. Do you know that we're called to be a witness at work? 1 Timothy 6.1 says, Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters of worthy of all honor. And remember when we were back in 1 Peter that masters in the context today is the employer and slaves is us as the employee. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Titus 2, 9-10, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And when I say witnessing, I'm not talking about walking up to your boss who's an atheist and throwing your Bible down on the desk and saying, Listen, bub, you're going to hell. That's not witnessing. Okay? The Holy Spirit may give you opportunities to shine and share Christ in your workplace. But we're always to be a witness to our employer through our diligent work. And that brings joy in our work, doesn't it? Next is 
seeing work as worship because of who we are working for. Ultimately, we're not working for our employer. Colossians 3 says, Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And verse 19 finishes it up, saying, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All I know in these last couple of verses, there's just a lot of dirt. And this, the sweat of our face is not part of the curse. It's not part of the consequence. Okay, it's the way God made our body. We sweat when we're overheated to cool our bodies off. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And some might say, does this literally mean bread? What well, says bread. So we're to eat bread and other stuff with it. Till you return to the ground, and for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Next week, God willing, we're going to finish up chapter 3. We're going to see that Adam and Eve were banished from paradise. And we're going to see more of God's mercy and His grace in the midst of banishment. And I want to go backwards just before we close off. Because if there's one verse that I want you to focus on and to take home and to think through as we close the service off, praising the Lord in song, is verse 15. It's proto-evangelism. It's the first gospel. It's way back here where God said that he is going to put enmity between Eve's offspring and Satan's offspring. And that he is going to crush Satan's head. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The battle, folks, is over. It's done. And we're going to see these verses played out through the rest of Genesis and through the rest of Scripture. And wherever you're reading this week, even in the New Testament, consider these verses because they're going to come alive to you like you've never seen before as you read anywhere in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you that you are the sovereign. I can't even comprehend, God, when I look at this chart, what it is you've done. And that you had a plan even before the first man and woman sinned. And God, we understand that we are all depraved because of that first sin in the garden. That we have all been infected with a disease called sin. Yet, Lord, you've shown forth your mercy and your grace early on. And day after day after day after day throughout all of history, even today and tomorrow, where your mercies are new every day, that you have come to seek and save the lost. And God, when we, when we blow it, when we uh, sin against you, as David said in Psalm 51, that it is only against you, God, that I've sinned. God, I pray that we would not stay there and wallow in the guilt of sin, but that we would run for the cross where there is freedom, where there is forgiveness, where there is forgiveness for the guilt of sin, where there is hope 
where there is victory. God, we thank you that the enemy has no right, has no authority in this place, in this church, in anybody's life that knows you, that has completely repented and turned towards you. God, I pray that this good news would infect us. I pray that it would spur us on to love and good deeds. I pray that it would spur us on, as Peter and John said in Acts, to to not be able to stop declaring and proclaiming what it is that we've seen and we've heard. That we deserve hell. But we're not getting it. We're not getting it today. We're not getting it tomorrow. We're not getting it next week. Because you put our feet on firm ground. God, we love you. We praise you and we worship you.